morning. It is always such a pleasure um, to gather together every Sunday here. My name is Susie. I am the pastor here at Hongdae Alpha. And as of late, we've been having so many new visitors, especially with the summer kind of upon us. So um, if you are new to our community, welcome. We hope that this feels like a home to you, that this is, you know, a place where you feel God's presence and that you are free to worship with us. Um, we also have a good amount of um, people from our Ito on campus, which recently closed, um, kind of making the rounds around each campus. This is obviously the better campus. No pressure, but I love it if y'all could stay here. If you are from our Ito on campus, could you just take a, a short moment to? Yes, that's right. That's right. Etoanites are not supposed to raise your hand like this. Y'all got, you, you got your gang sign? Yeah. So we're always so happy to have our Etoan family with us here. We hope that it feels just like home and that you don't feel like you have to start all over from scratch all over again, but that this feels like family as well. So welcome to everybody to today's service. Um, as of last week, we finished um, a series on Colossians 3, and y'all are thinking like, wait, what happened with Colossians 4? You can go home and read it. It's, it's still there in your Bible. <laughs> but today we're going to start actually a series on the book of 1 John. Yeah, that's right. The book of 1 John is like packed, packed with good stuff. And so what we're going to be doing is three weeks uh, in the book of 1 John. Today we're going to be talking about the um, relating to God. Next week we're going to have Pastor Emily. She's going to be preaching about relating to the church. And then the third week we're going to have Pastor David Ha. He's going to be preaching on relating to the world. So 1 John has so much packed in there that we're going to kind of tease out for the next three weeks. And I'm really excited for us to kind of dig in starting today. So if you've um, ever read the, the epistle of John, it's different from the gospel of John. So the epistle of John is very similar in many ways to the gospel of John. And we're going to talk about those things as well. But today, as we start, I wanted to give you a little bit of background about the Apostle John. Now, he is one of my favorite guys in the Bible. Um, he has like, he's known for different things. But the first thing is that his background is a fisherman. So he wasn't like your seminary candidate. Like he wasn't like your intern pastor. Kind of, you know, he was a fisherman and he heard Jesus's voice saying, come and follow me. He drops his nets and he follows him right away. And so that is his background. This is somebody who did not think that he had prospects in like uh, in ministering or, you know, shepherding. And God saw him. As he was being faithful in what he was called to do, and he called him out to follow him. He's also known as John the Beloved, and this is his own self-proclaimed label. I love it. Like, how um, confident do you need to be as in, like, if I were to say, like, Susie the Awesome. Like, I call myself, introduce myself as Susie the Awesome. My name is Susie the Awesome. Um, so, this is the same as John the Beloved. He calls himself John the Beloved, and he... Uh, is so um, bold as to be the one who's like really close to Jesus. And when they're leaning around the table, he has his leaning on Jesus as well. So he's super tight with Jesus. 
At the same time, he was also present at the crucifixion of Jesus. And we know this because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he looked down and he saw his apostle, I mean, his disciple. And then he saw his mom as well. And he said, this is now your mom. And John, take care of my mom at the same time. He later on moved on to pastor the church in Ephesus. And at the end of his life, this is like way up in his 90s, probably, he was exiled to the island of Patmos in his old age where he wrote the book of Revelation. Now, the crazy thing about the book of Revelation, and we don't want to go down that rabbit trail because I could talk on about the book of Revelation forever. But can you imagine like a 90 something year old? And he's been exiled away from his church community. And what you find him doing on you know, the Lord's day, according to the book of Revelation, is he was seeking the Lord, still pressing in after God. And in that moment, Jesus met him. And then the entire book of Revelation kind of was given to him. But how crazy and loved do you need to be? Like, even in exile, like, I don't care if I don't have my small group around me. I don't care if I have my pastors around me. Like, wherever the Lord finds me, he's going to find me seeking him. Like, in his 90s, at the end of his life, he's not fizzling out. He's not slowing down in any way. He's still going hard after the Lord. He's still on fire. And that's how we get the book of Revelation. So this is why I love this guy. You know, he didn't just like sit down somewhere and write, not that anybody did, you know, just like write out letters and just hand them out. But he was somebody who lived this walk and he did it all the way through his life. It wasn't like he had his Christian stage and then he moved on or kind of like he got distracted with different things. But he was on fire for the Lord all throughout his life. And so I love I love the fact that we're reading something that was penned by this apostle. So as I said, today, we're going to be going through uh, the topic of relating to God from the, first, the book of 1 John. And as we've done in the previous weeks, we're going to kind of just walk through the verses, and then we're going to come together with uh, some kind of application. So starting with 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, it says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched this. We proclaim concerning the word of life. It's very similar to the way that he started the gospel of John. And he starts in the first chapter by saying in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. You hear a very similar uh, tone and similar motifs. And then we go on to the next verse. It says the life appeared. We have seen it. And testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Now we're going to pause here for a second. Do you hear, like, the wonder and awe in his voice? It's almost like you can hear the undertones of, like, like the word which was from the beginning. The life that was with, that was with God in the very beginning, I have touched him my eyes these two eyeballs in my face right now they have i've laid eyes on this eternal life i've seen him i've heard him these ears i've heard the words coming out of his mouth and it is like he's like trying to convince he's like grabbing you by the shoulders he's like i have seen him like i have to testify about this i have to tell you guys about this because i've seen it i've touched it now i'm near near to the end of my life and i need to testify of this one who appeared to us and was with the father from the very beginning 
This is very similar to the tone that he uses in the gospels when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Man, this is somebody who's not just like sitting there writing out theology. This is somebody who's fully in love with Jesus and has lived a life that bears witness to that love as well. Now, verses three and four, it continues on to say, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with the son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, have you ever met anybody who's like super passionate about something? It's like they cannot, they have to talk about it. Like I have friends, for example, who I don't understand why, but they're like super into like Star Wars, for example. Like they have to, they're like Star Wars evangelists. Like they have to, you sit with them for more than five minutes. They're going to eventually land at Star Wars somewhere. And you're like, I mean, that's great. Can we talk about something else? And they're like, no, it's because you don't understand. Like if you understood there's history here and there's a universe out there. And then the fact that this guy shows up now in the fourth and not in the third, it's like really, really like you have to really get into it. But all I'm saying is like people who are super passionate about something, they're like almost like bursting at the seams, wanting to talk about what they're so passionate about. So imagine this is apostle John and he's saying, not just look, this is the guy that I need to talk to you about. It's his name is Jesus Christ. And I'm like, I'm totally about him. He's saying like, Jesus and I are one. It's like star Wars and I are one. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Like it's a, a different level. It's not just fascination, but oneness fellowship with Jesus and with the father as well. So he is saying not just that he's, this is a a topic that he wants to talk about. He's saying he is one with Jesus, one with the father and fellowship with God, the father and God, the son means that whoever comes into orbit with me is going to have to hear about God. Does that make sense? Like imagine, uh, imagine uh, this podium is, is God, right? And the closer I am to this podium, it's like the, the more fellowship I have with this podium. That's kind of a weird way to say, right? I have fellowship with this podium, right? But then imagine somebody wants to come close to me. They're going to automatically get close to this podium. You can't get close to me without getting close to the podium. In the same way, like imagine somebody was getting close to the podium. Automatically, they're going to get close to me as well. In the same way, fellowship with God the Father and God the Son means that whoever comes into orbit, comes into contact with John the Apostle, is going to come into contact with God the Father and God the Son. Now, and he goes on to say, this is a message we have heard from him and declare to you. And this is his kind of bombshell statement. He says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, we don't really understand the power of light until we kind of grow accustomed to darkness. That sounds a little bit like like Bane, right? Like, you know what I mean? What was the line? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Like, you were merely, I was born in the dark. No, okay, anyway. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? Okay, sorry. Pop culture reference that I don't even know very well myself. Okay, so we're going to try an experiment here. We're going to have the lights off in the room. And we're going to turn off the stage lights as well. So can we go ahead and do that? Those those are the house lights are off. And now if you could hit the blackout 
All right, this is not even full darkness, right? We still have a lot of light kind of creeping in from all the windows. And like slowly as your eyes get adjusted, now you can start making out the contours of my face and you can see me. I can see your faces that are kind of backlit from the back. Um, And you let your eyes adjust a little bit to this. Now, if I were to ask our sister Kyla to press the blackout button one more time, like the light, this light isn't even all that bright, but the fact that you were in the darkness, it almost like sensitizes your eyes so that when the light appears, it's all that much more shocking, all that much more noticeable. And even something that wasn't all that bright, all of a sudden it, it like, it takes a moment for your eyes to adjust and everybody kind of made this kind of face really beautiful face. Um, so in the, in the same way, can we turn on the house lights back on? Yeah. So in the same way, can you imagine after the entirety of the old Testament and then in between the old Testament, and the new Testament, there's 400 years where the Bible is silent, although God himself wasn't silent, but then the new Testament opens up with Matthew and you go through an entire genealogy and you're talking about God who is uncreated stepping into history. Do you understand like the magnitude of something like that? And so with that same kind of like awe and disbelief, we hear the apostle John saying like, this is the uncreated God. The one who is light is not just he gives light, but he is light. The light of the world has stepped into our midst. Now, Have you ever thought about how the Bible begins? The first words out of, well, not written, but the first words out of God's mouth, it was let there be light. And that's what he chooses to create. The first thing he chooses to create before humankind, before the the birds of the air, before the beasts of the field, he chooses to create light. And that says something about who he is. He is in essence light. And the first thing he chooses to kind of create just through the words of his mouth, ex nihilo, it is light. And then from there on, all throughout the scriptures, you hear about this God who is light. In Psalm 27, 1, it starts by saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? In Matthew 4, 16, it says, the people living in darkness have seen a great light and those living in the light of shadow of death, a light has dawned upon them. In John 1, 5, it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John 8, 12, it says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. It means God rescued you out of darkness. The God who is light, he appeared in your life. He rescued you out of darkness and he's brought you into his wonderful light. It's it's like I brought you into the fellowship of the stand. Like if I was to pull you out and stand you right here in the same way, um, it would be like coming, walking into, stepping into his wonderful light. Now, first John continues on to say, if we claim to have fellowship with him, Yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. He continues on to say, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship 
with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, this is the first point in this book where he brings out the topic of sin. And you're like, whoa, like we're talking about light here. We're talking about darkness here. Like, why do we, do we need to get personal here? Like, are you implying that I have sin? And he goes on to say, yes, I'm implying that you have sin. Almost as if he anticipates your internal, like, objection. Like, but I'm not that bad. But I don't, like, I need light, but I don't need it as bad as my neighbor right here or my friend right here or my cousin over there. Um, almost as if he could anticipate that objection kind of rising up from your flesh. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. In other words, he's saying, don't kid yourselves. You know, as harsh as that sounds, he says, don't kid yourselves. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all blind. We're all groping around in the darkness without the light of Christ. We're all dead in our sin. He doesn't give anybody any wiggle room to say like, but, like, but, I, I, I don't know. Like, maybe relatively speaking, my sin isn't as bad or, or like, they really need Jesus. But I, like, I, I kind of, I I need Jesus, but not as much as they do. I probably need 30% of what they need. You know, like we, we kind of tend to measure ourselves in that way. But he doesn't give us any wiggle room. He says, if we claim to be without sin, if you're completely blind to your sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is the hope that we are given. Can you imagine just, you know, this verse having stopped right before if we confess our sins? We're like, okay, we're all, let's go home. We're kind of doomed here. But Apostle John, he doesn't let us just sit in the fact that, hey, we are sinners and we need the light of Christ. But he says, but if we confess our sins, this is the hope once we've realized that we are desperately in need of forgiveness. And that's the promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We continue on and say, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. There's something in us that tends to minimize or justify or explain away the sin that we have in our lives. Sometimes we don't even call it sin. Sometimes we're like, or oh, we're wrestling here, or I have a struggle here, or, but we seldom call it straight up sin, which is what the Bible calls it. We tend to compare ourselves and hopefully we kind of land a little bit higher than somebody else. But God is very clear in his word. And Jesus was also very clear when he walked here on this earth. There was an instance in Luke 18 where Jesus looked at a Pharisee. And he looked at a tax collector and they were in, you know, they were standing side by side. And the Pharisee was saying, thank God, I'm not like that guy. Like I tithe, I do the right things. I cleanse myself. I don't come into contact with anything that's bad. Like I got it down. At least I'm not as bad as that guy. And then this guy here, all he is doing is coming in honesty before a holy God and the words that come out of his mouth are, God, have mercy on me, for I am a sinner. That's all he's saying. It doesn't mean that he's doing anything better. He's just simply confessing his need for forgiveness. 
And Jesus, when he looked at these two characters, he said only one of these men went home justified. And that was a tax collector. Now, he's not saying this guy is bad and this guy is good. Jesus is saying both are bad. Both have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Both are need of forgiveness. But only one man was aware of his need for forgiveness and called out for mercy. So it doesn't mean like, okay, so we just don't need to be like the Pharisee. We need to be like a tax collector. Let me try to live like a tax collector. That's not the point. The point is all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us need to cry out in the same way that the tax collector did. All of us need to cry out for mercy. All of us need that mercy. The only thing that kept the Pharisee blind to his need for God was the fact that he thought he was doing everything right. And sometimes that could be an even more deceiving and more, um, more blinding kind of situation where you think you've got it all right. Like you say the right things, you do the right things, you spend your money in the right way, you spend your time in the right way, but you're not crying out for mercy. You're not realizing that even though you get everything right, you're still in need of Christ. So that is what we see Jesus saying in Luke 18. Now, John continues on to say two more things. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. First thing he says, as un, like politically incorrect as this is, he's saying, don't sin. Like very clear. He says, don't sin. He's not saying like, well, you know, in your circumstance, I understand that. Or like, hey, but you didn't, it wasn't your fault here. He's saying just, just don't sin. And this has become such a radical statement to make, especially in today's postmodern world right? Like if you were to tell your friend, like, Hey, that's sinning. Like, what do you think your friend would be like, you know, like, yeah, thank you. So no, he'd be like, what do you mean? How dare you call this sin? Don't you know that my background, don't you know that my circumstances, like everything in us wants to explain away, minimize the sin in our lives. So apostle John is very straight up saying, look, don't sin. And then here's a hope. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. In other words, but if you do, don't sin, but if you do, you are not without hope. There is one who defends your case before the holy God, and his name is Jesus Christ. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. When he says atoning sacrifice, it's not like we kind of hear that as a kind of like theological term, like a very abstract theological term. But for Jews in that day, it was actually something very literal. Like they could picture in their mind what an atoning sacrifice looks like. It looks like an animal with blood all over it, split in half, often sitting in the burning altar of the Lord, like releasing kind of like smoke that goes up to heaven. It is something very literal, very concrete that John brings to picture for his audience. He says, it's not just like a fluffy thing that he did, an abstract thing that he did. He is the atoning sacrifice. He's that dead animal that you see in front of you, split wide open, still dripping with blood. Like, I, I don't encourage you guys to google this but if you do 
the pictures are pretty gruesome. It's not a pretty picture. Like you imagine something like very clean, like it's not like that at all. It's really, really gruesome. And this is a picture that he's intentionally bringing to the table. Jesus Christ is that atoning sacrifice for our sins. He says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in him. He's, Apostle John is saying something very offensive right now, right? He's saying it is possible to live an entire lifetime with the name of Christian with the culture of a Christian, doing the things that a Christian does, saying the things that a Christian does, but living a completely different lifestyle that betrays your allegiance. Does that make sense? He's saying it doesn't matter what comes out of your mouth. It doesn't matter how decently you dress or what you post on social media. If you're not submitted to his word in your life, it doesn't need to be perfectly, but it needs to be in surrender then you cannot make a case that you know him. And he's doing away with a lot of the, well, uh, I don't really know, like, what a Christian looks like. Like, he's saying, like, look, if you're not submitted to his word, if you're not submitted to this, this is what marks a Christian. Doesn't, what marks a Christian isn't what you do on Sunday morning. It doesn't, it's not defined by, how many verses you post up on your Instagram or, you know what I mean? Like it's not defined by those things. He's saying it's very plain and clear. If you're not submitted to the word of God, like what gives you grounds to call yourself a Christian? And he's making a very, very black and white. He's trying to bring us to that very uncomfortable place where we have to be confronted by the word of God. See, we could have messages over and over again about certain topics, and we could have messages that are encouraging. We could have messages that are healing. We could have all kinds of things happen within these four walls. But if what isn't happening is the preaching of the word and a community that is submitted to the word of God, then there's not very much fruit and not very many signs that this is a Christian community. Does that make sense? Like we could show up here every Sunday until Jesus comes back. That is not going to make us Christian. What makes us Christian is how we submit to this word within these four walls and outside of these four walls as well. So he, um, he goes on to say, but if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. We're not just like talking about the cool and the glorious and the like, yeah, I'm a Christian and I'm going to walk like Jesus did. And I'm going to have a WWJD bracelet. And like, you know, well, if you guys lived in the nineties and early two thousands, right? Right. That's what marked a Christian, right? Uh, or a promise ring. I'm not, I'm not banging any of those things. I did those things at a time as well. All, all I'm saying is like, like, this is what marks a Christian. And this, he's making very clear, you must walk as Jesus did. And we're not t- just talking about the packaging of a Christian. Um, and the, the Jesus that we're following isn't just a Jesus who healed people and he preached to the crowds and he flipped tables at the temple. This is not the only Jesus that we follow. We're also talking about the Jesus who prayed until he began to sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Until he submitted himself to the cup of suffering that the Father had given him. 
We're talking about the Jesus who in the midst of being betrayed and outcasted and, um, you know, beaten and he was hanging on the cross. Even then he looked out into the crowd and he said, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the kind of Jesus we're talking about. So it's not the, just the, yeah, we're Christians. Let's go. Let's do this. But we're talking about the suffering Christ who put into action the things that he had preached for for three years this is the god that we follow this is the atoning sacrifice this is the god that we model our lives over as well not just the lion but also the lamb verse seven he continues to say dear friends i'm not writing you a new command but an old one which you have since the beginning this old command is a message you've heard yet i am writing you a new command its truth is seen in him. It's the word. The truth of the gospel is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. This is a really beautiful, beautiful passage that is very challenging in so many ways. We can't just read this and be like, oh, that's nice. God is light. We should, we should walk in the light. Otherwise, we're going to be a liar. Okay, good. You know, like it's not a very comfortable passage for us to be confronted by. It's very confrontational. It's very uncomfortable in places. But this is what I want us to end with. So how do we relate to God in light of 1 John 1 and the beginning of 2? How do we relate to God? The first thing is we need to relate God in honesty. This is a God who, whether you tell him or not, he knows what's going on in your life, right? It's not like, like you finally confess your sin and he's like, oh, I had no idea. No, he's like, you know what I mean? Like he's waiting for you to take that step of faith and confess to him. This is a God who knows all things, who sees all things. This is a God who is light in the middle of darkness. Darkness cannot overcome him. So if you were to turn on a light in a room, it takes up the entire room in the same way. That's the way that God works in your life. He sees everything. He fills up your entire life. And as we approach him, we're going to see a lot of things that maybe we aren't really proud of. There's going to be a lot of things that come up to the surface that we didn't even know were there. But that is what happens when light enters into your life. And the first way in which we in turn, relate to God is in honesty. Now, the practice of repentance for many of us is like, uh, that's like back when I accepted Jesus for the first time. Or like, that's kind of like beginner Christianity, like Christianity one-on-one, one-on-one, one-on-one. And you feel like there's no like need for repentance once you've graduated into like mature Christianity. That's not the case. We're always called to be repentant before God. There's always going to be things that surprise us, but doesn't surprise God. And his forgiveness is there. He's just waiting for us to deal in honesty with him. Oftentimes because of shame, because we feel like, man, like I've been a Christian for this many years. How am I struggling with this? I cannot talk to anybody about this. I cannot even talk to God about this because of the shame that you feel often The further you walk along with God, the less honesty there is. Almost like when you first 
like encounter God, like you, you spill your guts out. Like, bleh. like these are all my sins of all my years. And, and you deal with him in honesty because you realize that you need him and you need his forgiveness. And he knows all these things already. Why do we graduate from that? Why do we graduate from that when we walk further with God? So we need to guard the honesty that we deal with God with. We need to deal with him in honesty and allow his light to shine into those places in our hearts that maybe we haven't given him access to. Maybe places in our hearts like, hey, you're good in the living room, but like in the bedroom, in the pantry, I don't know about that. Like you want to give him full access into your life. And there's no way around that. He's not going to twist your arm. He's not going to threaten you. He's simply going to invite you into an honest conversation with him. Second, we relate to God in adoration. I don't know if you felt it in the tone of John. This is not just somebody who's writing out do's and don'ts and steps, you know, to get right with God. This is someone who's fully in love, obsessed with this God that he's encountered. And in the same way, we are called to fascination and awe. Often when we get deep into the word or deep into theology, you feel like, okay, now the, the adoration stuff, the wishy-washy emotional stuff, like that's for other people or like that's only for chicks. So like I've heard this. Like, what? Have you read John? <laughs> like he's like the most emotional passion. Anyway, um, Jesus was too, by the way. Um, like we have to be able to not just fill our heads with, a knowledge of God, but fill our hearts with adoration, fascination, awe, and wonder at this God. If you're just reading this and being like, okay, just give me, tell me what to do. And there's not a part of you that comes alive, like begins to burn within you in love and adoration. There's something wrong with that. Like the word is not supposed to just be something dry that we tolerate. It's supposed to fuel our understanding and passion and worship of God. Now, finally, we relate to God in communion. Communion is just another word for oneness, close fellowship. And we cannot just talk about the light. We cannot just tell others about the light. We ourselves have to walk in that light as well. We want to know God and we want him to know us. And wouldn't it be a shame if, after 20 years of being a Christian and you know all the Bible verses and you know all the theology and the mechanics and all these things, but you haven't taken the step to draw close to God yourself. Can you imagine what a, just what, what a waste it would be? What a shame it would be if you do all these things, but you don't have that oneness with God. You don't feel that closeness, that connection with God. And on the flip side, how amazing would it be if God in our midst, in his mercy, in his grace, in his sovereignty, if he built up a community that deals with him in honesty, in pure adoration, and also in oneness, in communion. What kind of impact could a community like that have in the world? What kind of impact could a Christian like that have in their workplace and their families in a world that is desperately searching for light, often in the wrong places? 
what kind of impact with, an, with a community of people who are dealing with God in honesty, who are worshiping him in adoration, and are one with him in communion. What kind of impact, what kind of legacy, what kind of testimony could this community have? Let me close with this. I said that in the beginning, the first thing that God created in Genesis 1 was light. He created, he created something that was purely his essence, you know, light. But do you know what happens towards the end of the story? I'm not going to ask you to open up to this. I'll just read to you from Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, it talks about new heavens and new earth. After the world has gone through the greatest trials and tribulations that history has ever seen. After the greatest darkness comes the greatest light. And he talks about the new Jerusalem. This is again, apostle John in his old age. And now he's seeing where everything is headed toward everything that he preached about everything that he heard when he was younger. Now he gets a revelation of where all this is headed. And he says that he sees a new heaven, new earth. He sees the new city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And this is one of the qualities that he says when he's describing this new city, this new Jerusalem. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. This is how the story ends. A God who spoke light into being a God who became the light of the world. He's leading us to an eternity where we don't need any other light other than him. He is the lamb who was slain and he is the light of the world. We're going to see it tangibly. We're going to see it with our own eyes when the end comes. And that is why it's not a sad ending to the story. We're going to be with him in a way that we've never been before. We're going to see his unveiled glory like never before. We will not need the sun. We will not need the moon. For the glory of God will be our light on that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word doesn't just bring clarity, doesn't just bring conviction, but it also brings hope. It gives us something to look forward to. It encourages us, especially when we feel our brokenness and our sin. We thank you that you loved us so that you did not spare your one and only son who is the light of the world. And you ordain the light of the world to come into flesh and to dwell in our midst. We're so grateful, God, that you're not just light that stays in the distance, but you're the God who invites us in. You draw us close. You invite us into a journey of walking a lifetime 
in the light. Proverbs 4, verse 18 says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining brighter and brighter until midday. Father, we pray that this would be what our lives look like. People who have been captivated by the God who is light. People that have invited in that light into their own lives. And people who walk out this life as light. As light shining into darkness. May this be the testimony of the church. May, be, may this be the testimony of our very own lives. That we would shine brighter and brighter. You would shine brighter and brighter. That you would not let us fizzle out. You don't let us become jaded. You don't let us walk away. But that our lives would shine ever brighter for the glory of our God. We love you. We thank you for your word and for your commitment to your people. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.